Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Welcome again to Out of the Question podcast. This is the question we're going to explore. Are you fearful because you are guilty? Now, that might sting for someone who experiences fear, but let's get behind the question as this podcast is about. So, Charles, what is or is there a connection between being fearful and being guilty? You know, I really like this question because it gives me an opportunity to quote my famous Chinese uh, proverb, my favorite one. I think I may have quoted it in some of our discussions before. I use it on occasion in sermons. And I don't remember if this came from a fortune cookie or if actually it was a, a Chinese proverb, but it goes like this. And I think it gets to the very heart of this issue. A man with a clear conscience need not fear a knock at the door at midnight. Hmm. Now, you think about that and, uh, you know, that's... There's a lot of reasons you might be concerned about a knock at the door at midnight, but it gets to the point that somebody who doesn't really have anything to worry about or be concerned over is not going to be concerned that somebody may may be out to get them on something or other. I think there is absolutely a connection between fear and guilt, because whether we are guilty before God, uh, guilty before a friend, a spouse, uh, an employer or fellow employee, that generally involves us having mistreated or done them wrong in some either public, private, or per even personal way. And so we have, if we have any conscience at all, and maybe we can talk later about people who don't seem to have a conscience and have no issue of guilt whatsoever, at least none that they care to admit, they recognize that there is something wrong, there's something broken in the relationship, and either because they fear embarrassment or retribution they do live in a, in a great deal of fear. But you, you suggested before we got started that the issue maybe we need to talk about as well is what exactly is guilt? What do you think? Well, first of all, there are certain presuppositions that Christians will bring to any discussion about anything, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we have sinned, or I should say, since we have sinned, there are going to be real-world consequences externally, but also internally. So guilt is an internal consequence of sin. And the reason it is there and it's inescapable is because we have all been created with a conscience that knows right and wrong. And anybody who's raised children can see from the beginning that Children tend to hide things that they know are wrong, either actions or things that they're not supposed to have. So guilt is a consequence of sin. And as Rush Dooney has pointed out in a number of his position papers, politicians and governments capitalize on the fact that people are guilty and that's where that correlation comes in between a guilty people will be a fearful people. Yes, and Holy Scripture gives us, you know, I started out with a Chinese proverb, but really Holy Scripture is the paradigm uh, model and example for us in Genesis 
the first several chapters of Genesis, where we have the very first recorded instance of guilt, where Adam and Eve sin against God, which, as you just said, you know, is the foundation of guilt. And they obviously were aware that something was wrong because their first instinct was to hide it, to hide themselves and to uh, run and hide away from God. And that was the conviction of a guilty conscience. And it's interesting, Dr. Rushdini gives a very striking example of this in um, his position paper that we, sort of the foundation of our discussion in the three-volume set, An Informed Faith, which used to be called The Roots of Reconstruction, I believe, in chapter 211, it's on page 873 of the, let's see, it's the third volume, Guilt, Atonement, and Freedom. It's one of the position papers, number 43. He wrote this or published it in 1983. This remarkable example of how guilt is manifest both in terms of the state and also in terms of God. And one, of course, seeks to replace the other. The state sees itself as God walking on the earth. And so there is a, ver- there is a version of guilt that the state lays upon its subject. And it's interesting in the quintessential example of that in modern times, uh, George Orwell's 1984, if you see especially the motion picture cinematic adaptation of that, and uh, this uh, character, I believe his name is Winston, you know, one of the things that happens to him and, and all the people in that dystopian nightmarish future, if they violate the rules of the state and they're constantly under surveillance, is that they have to stand up and profess their guilt. You know, we, the same thing happened in and probably still does in communist China, but there was a, an era under Mao, I believe, where people who did nothing more than own a business, you know, had to wear this placard around their necks, accuse themselves of being guilty of violating the uh, the principles of Marxism. So guilt in and of itself, I would say, and scripture bears witness to this, is unavoidable. And a lot of times people will talk about, I need to get rid of my guilt. I'm carrying this guilt and people will spend a lot of money on therapy and, or if they don't spend it on therapy, they'll spend a lot of time rehearsing their guilt. And in our day, we have guilt being thrust upon people for things that they weren't alive for. But I think what the whole idea of guilt speaks to is the next step, the need for atonement. In other words, what does the hymn say? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, we could also say what can cover my guilt? The blood of Jesus, because guilt is actually a positive response to wrongdoing if your theology is correct. Yes, and Paul also speaks of that very thing in Romans 1, in the uh, well-known passage, at least to most of us, you know, where he talks about the, the pagan mind in particular in his denial of the true God, either God's existence or that he is the absolute and only true God, by saying that they're aware, they're, they're, their inner being testifies to them of the truth and the existence of the true God, and yet they, they suppress, they hold down that truth in unrighteousness, and that is a, that is a, a guilt response. And so the natural person is constantly dealing with this inner tension, seeking that atonement that you refer to. And there's something they know, whether they can articulate it or not, they're either going to have humanistic, pagan, or biblical ways of explaining it. 
And of course, the only real solution to it is the, the biblical pattern, the biblical pathway of uh, having our sins forgiven and our uh, guilt removed through the atoning work of Christ Jesus. But what Paul focuses on there in Romans 1 is this very issue of people whose lives are dominated by a turning away from the guilt that naturally convicts them, and, or at least I should say, trying to find a remedy for it other than what God's Word says is the remedy. And so, like you said, people will seek therapy. My word, that uh, we've gone through an era of the past 20 or 30 years or so that, and this is, this is not limited to that, but from the pulpits of churches, it's, it's therapy session. There are some now, thankfully, formerly well-known teachers and preachers who majored in that. Uh, Robert Schuller, I don't know how far his church was from where you live, but he was probably the most famous. You know, he wrote a book on self-esteem, the New Reformation. That was the name of it. And he said in the book, and I actually heard him in an interview one time saying that guilt is the worst thing that Christianity's ever done to people. Interesting. Well, let's kind of make this a little bit more down to earth closer to home for people. I know that when I was a child, I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid of dying when I went to sleep. So it was now I lay me down to sleep, whether or not I believed all that, but I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. My recollection is I added, but I don't want to die tonight. (laughs) So I said that prayer. (laughs) But I was afraid of that. I was afraid of noises in the basement. In my adult years, I didn't like on a plane taking off. Maybe I had seen too many depictions of that's when the planes are likely to crash. And so there was this fear that, you know, was present in my life. The first time I gave birth, I was fearful of what that would be like. Is it fair to say from your perspective, Charles, that those fears all stem from a preceding guilt? That's a good question. I can't really say for absolute certainty that, say, someone who's afraid of the dark uh, is dealing with some sort of inner guilt. Uh, I would have to think about that in uh, a lot more detail. But I mean, on the larger scale, if these things are related in any way, shape or form to, say, fear of physical harm, and maybe in terms of being afraid of the dark, that's part of it. You know, something could happen to us in the dark. We can't see. Somebody might grab us. Something might fall on our heads or something to that extent. You know, the larger issue is, do we really trust God to take care of us and to um, choose the best for our lives? I mean, you added that statement to your prayer, but not tonight, please, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, so yes, that, there may be that element to it. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I was thinking about it a lot because I always like our discussions to be practical And not so abstract, but when my children would have those fears, uh, I remember one of them had to sleep with the light on because there was this fear that what couldn't be seen could be hurtful. And I discovered that as I instructed my children on the truth of scripture and on the sovereignty of God and let them know that the first and basic commandment, now understand it's to the degree they could understand it. So I would make it understandable that we're to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so since all of us are born in sin, we are in violation of that commandment. And so by communicating to my children that God foreordains whatever comes to pass, the things you like, 
the things you don't like, that's part of God's sovereign plan for your life, that we have to trust God. That's our response. And that's one of the ways that we fulfill to the best we can the first and greatest commandment. In other words, to put our lives in his hands. And so does it automatically make it so that people aren't fearful? No, I still experience times where I will hear things or hear reports on things. And my first response is, oh, no, what are we going to do? And then I have to talk myself down by remembering what scripture says and what the promises of the kingdom are so that whatever prompted that initial response to not trust God, it's actually an area where I need to repent. Because if I'm not trusting in God, then I'm trusting in something else. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, We're trying to emphasize the practical side of this in this uh, position paper that's sort of the uh, reference point for our discussion. Um, Dr. Rastuni spends a fair amount of time talking about this on the uh, the more political, theological, philosophical scale. But he also brings it to this personal aspect, uh, and it's relevant to what you just said. And he says, guilt is the enemy of freedom. And then he makes this very interesting statement. It disturbs rest and sleep and hinders our work and functioning. You know, if, if uh, you you go to bed with a guilty conscience, you're not going to sleep well. If you go to work with a guilty conscience, you're not going to do your work very well. And uh, again, if you have done something, guilt, either there's the metaphysical guilt that we have before God, but most of us are having to deal with a guilt relating to some other person or people or something on this practical level. Like Cain, of course, killed his brother, and he was destined to spend the rest of his life looking over his shoulder because of his guilt and his fear, even though God assured him you know, no one would harm him. But we can safely assume that that was probably not good, good enough for him. Well, if and he so, didn't believe it, if he didn't believe it, if he didn't submit to God and repent of his act of murder, of course, he would always be looking over his shoulder by his self-inflicted guilt. You know, it's interesting, too, that uh, I'm currently preaching through the first part of Genesis, and we've just finished chapter seven, the, the flood story. It's interesting that nowhere in that account does Scripture record for us that the people of that age, and, and it's remarkable in Genesis 7 where time and again, numerous times, Almighty God stressed the fact that everything died. Nothing with breath remained alive. This was catastrophic, absolute judgment. You know, and, and th- there's not, nothing in Scripture that indicates that anyone among the people who, well, the vast, the overwhelming majority of the population, except Noah and his family, none of them cried out for mercy. None of them expressed any remorse about anything. Um, right. and, and, and so, you know, that, that's a case that said we can talk about that maybe in, in a few minutes about people who claim they don't, they don't seem to have a sense of guilt. Right. Well, in the last two years, we have been inundated with fear reports that this virus, if it's actually a virus, and there's some dispute even on that, that we should be fearful of it. And what's interesting to me, and this is West Coast observations, you're on the East Coast, so you can tell me if it's similar, is that there seems to be a line drawn between those who think that the state must give us this risk-free scenario 
that if we don't do what we're told to do in terms of masking or isolation or now taking an injection, that we could die. And the state's role is to make sure we don't die. Well, we've got 6,000 years of recorded history, and Adam's not still here. King David's not still here. So obviously, people die from something other than COVID-19. And so when people are afraid and will suspend the rational thing that says, let me examine this, okay, and actually look at it, but are governed by fear, it makes me wonder what guilt might be prompting them to not use the brain that God gave them to say, number one, is death the worst thing that can happen to you? Well, for those who are not free in Christ, I guess the answer is yes. But for those who know that the sun makes you free and you're free indeed, that if this is your last hour, your last day, your last week on earth, praise God, those are the days that he numbered for you. Yes, and as uh, Dr. Rush Dooney said in the quote that I just shared, that guilt is the enemy of freedom. And so far as fear is a corollary of guilt, as we have been saying that it certainly is, People, as we have seen in modern times, whether we trace it to 9-11 or the coronavirus uh, pandemic, whatever it may be, people are very quick to give up their freedoms because of their fear. And uh, I think there's something even more foundational and fundamental in terms of why they're willing to do that. It's because they know deep down inside their consciousness convict them that they're worshiping something other than the true God. They're worshiping the state. Their operating foundational default position is that, like you just said, the state will take care of me. It's the government's responsibility to protect me from this, that, or the other thing, whatever it may be. And I think that most people understand there's something terribly wrong with that picture and that their ultimate accountability is not to the state. Um, Their ultimate source of protection and freedom and deliverance from guilt, by the way, is from God in Christ Jesus. Right. So I believe there's a number of people who are probably fence-sitting trying to hedge their bet. Okay, I believe in God and God has numbered my days. But what if this really is as bad as it could be? And and so I'm going to do what somebody says and do all the stuff that really has been unheard of other than in, I believe, tyrannical situations. But the interesting response is for those who act out of fear, is the resentment to those who don't. Absolutely. And I think this is a component part of how um, either an individual, but in this case, the state manipulates freedom by means of guilt. You know, again, the default position has been the state in this case will deliver us from this virus pandemic. And therefore, everyone must do X, Y, and Z at the command of the state if we're all going to survive. And therefore, you become... You know, just like in the case of 1984, in the case of communist China, probably in Nazi Germany, you must self-accuse yourself because you haven't agreed to go with whatever the protocol may be. And the protocol is set forth not by any other source in this case than government authority. You know, if we follow what scripture teaches us concerning our health, our freedom, all of these things, we come up with a very, very different order in terms of how we're to be living our lives and how we can be delivered from things. I mean, human humanity has had to deal with 
you know, the, the challenges of living in a fallen world, including disease, including attacks by, uh, you know, evil men or wild beasts or whatever it may be. And God's law gives us prescriptions for how to deal with these various things. But if we're going to take our cues from uh, a pretend God or a, a, a contester to God's throne, then we're going to be dealing with the consequences. And so the guilt that people are made to feel today and the guilt that limits their freedom is guilt against the state, guilt of violating what the state tells you to do, even though maybe for Christians, especially your conscience is telling you, no, I really think I should be doing something else, but I want to go along to get along. I don't want to rock the boat. So let's, let's just you know, stand and salute and do what the state tells us. And this going along to get along or however the phrase goes, in a lot of ways, it's what will I give up if I defy a status mandate? What will I give up if I defy the living God? And so people have gotten used to what they put their trust in, their job, their health benefits, their retirement matching funds coming from their employer or however it plays out. And it's an interesting dilemma if you haven't thought through who you will fear, who you will rely on, regardless of the apparent or real consequences. And so a free man in Christ will say, you can take my life, but you can't take my faith. You can take my possessions, you can imprison me, but you can't have my conscience. And that's what makes us free in Christ, that when the accuser points out all those things we've done, I love this part in Pilgrim's Progress, where Pilgrim now named Christian says, oh, you don't know the half of it. I've also done this and this and this, Mm -hmm. that the accusations bounce off when you know your sins have been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think in that there is a fundamental problem. I keep using that word. (laughs) There is a significant problem in the churches among Christians in that it bears up and shows forth this inconsistency, if not contradiction, where they should feel freedom. They should feel be liberation because of what you just said, and yet they walk around in fear. Uh, they walk around concerned about, in this case, like we talked about, the, the virus or that the Muslims are going to kill them in the beds at night or whatever it may be. And it really goes to the heart of the issue is that who whom do you really worship? Who or what is God for you? Uh, God's word is a total word. It tells us how to live every aspect of life if we would but follow it and obey it by God's grace. And insofar as uh, people who claim to be Christ people go against that word in any area, there's going to be a problem. And of course, pagans and people who don't believe it to begin with, they have a different set of problems and they reap the consequences as we, in the case of what we've been talking about, you know, you have these poor misinformed people who've been told over and over again for the past year and a half that all they have to do is get this injection and everything will be fine. Uh, That doesn't seem to matter to a lot of people anymore for some strange reason. I think there are probably reasons we can talk about. Right. But they they get the injection, and then the next thing you know, they're sick with COVID. At least that's what they're told. 
Uh, or they, every, I, all of us, I think I, I know not quite a few people in verifiable cases of people who've been told by the state what they need to do to preserve their lives and, and, to, and to remain safe and healthy. And yet it hasn't worked. You know, I used to see the fear guilt thing play out when I would have my children in sports through a church league. And I would sit next to a person whose child was also in the same activity, soccer, basketball, or whatever. And we'd start talking. And what she, the person would say, where do your children go to school? And I would say, oh, I homeschool. Well, I would get the strangest responses, Charles. One woman looked at me and said, well, we need two cars. And I would like, Okay. (laughs) I just said I homeschooled. Another person said, well, we need to take vacations. So really and truly, there must have been some guilt there because I never even really asked her where her children went to school. But by saying I homeschooled somehow produced a response that seemed very irrational. And after, you know, the people would explain, I guess what they were saying is this is why we don't as opposed to we never wanted to or whatever. Um, And the person would get up, walk away. And for the rest of the season, that person wouldn't choose to sit next to me. And I always thought that was such a funny response because it had nothing to do with what I was asking, at least on the surface. You know, one of the uh, we've been talking about, uh, and and this, this is sort of in the category that you're just mentioning about how uh, people today are made to feel guilt and therefore give up their freedom in relation to the state. But Dr. Rastuni also mentions in this essay, in this position paper, how there are churches and religious leaders that use guilt as a means of manipulating others. And um, he, he cites several, or at least one example, uh, in the essay um, uh, about people and situations in churches where this is a problem. Um, I'm just wondering if you can think of any examples you're familiar with without being too personal or or explicit about it? Well, yes, actually. We were just having this discussion with my woman's Bible study um, this past week. Why should the celebration of communion of the Lord's Supper be such a somber event? I mean, we're rejoicing, right, in our salvation. And yet, if people think the only way that they're going to keep people in attendance is making them feel lousy and guilt-ridden, and that we're just like everyone else, I contend that those who are redeemed in Christ are a different category of being altogether than anyone else. So I am not like the unredeemed. I was like the unredeemed. But now I'm a new creation in Christ. And I think if you speak to new creations in Christ, you're not going to constantly guilt trip them. Why? Because their guilt has been removed. In other words, we can't change the past. I see this often with women who have had abortions. Some still carry the guilt in the sense that That will be the reason that they have problems. And yet there are others, and these are amazing army of women who pretty much staff the pregnancy centers that help women in similar circumstances that they were in. 
And these women will get up in front of a church, in front of a group of 500 people and talk about the fact that they had an abortion, but they're free. And you can see they're free. They're not carrying the guilt because as new creations in Christ, they are doing the work of the kingdom. So I have a very difficult time when I'm sitting in a congregation where I'm being beaten down because I'm so awful. I'm so awful. I'm so awful. Yeah, we're supposed to confess our sins as we, you know, as we commit them, right? But in essence, we are not guilty if we are in Christ. Would you say that the the flip side of what you just described is also true, where you have abortion clinics and pro-abortion organizations that maybe run and uh, supervised by women who've had abortions who are dealing with the guilt of that uh, procedure? Absolutely. Women I have known who have talked about their abortions, in many cases would volunteer at a Planned Parenthood, escorting women in because their guilt wouldn't go away. Hmm. And they figured, well, look at all these people that are doing the same thing I did. So it was more like a misery loves company than it is that we're free. And nowadays it becomes fashionable for women to shout their abortions and to women talk about it was the best decision they ever made. And somebody posted a meme on Facebook that I thought was extremely telling. It said, you know, I wasn't ready to be a mother. I was young. So I had my abortion and now I'm a better parent with the children that I have. And the underneath it said, when I was a young husband, I was immature. I really wasn't ready to be a husband. Therefore, I either killed or left my wife. And now I'm a better husband to my second wife. In other words, the correlation, people won't like the second, but we've discovered that if we seem happy about our decisions, that that means that, uh, other people should make the same wrong decisions we did. Yeah, and I think it shows the two-sided nature of guilt and the different ways that it, it destroys freedom. And in the case of uh, the situation that I brought up and we're still talking about with, say, within the churches, you know, if you have um, an elder, a pastor, a deacon in a church who um, seems to major on laying guilt trips on people, there's a chance that that individual is dealing with that in, in his own life. You know, Dr. Rastuni mentions the example of Stalin in the former Soviet Union as a man dominated by guilt and intent on, well, he, he talks initially about how Stalin used guilt to basically kill millions of people and totally wreck, you know, what had been a, a Russian Christian civilization. He had forerunners as well, of course, but then how he himself was dominated by guilt. And that's what led to a lot of his actions. Well, conversely, you know, we can see some examples in some churches where you have an individual, again, it may be a church leader of some description, who has never quite dealt with the guilt that whatever sin that he was involved with, or she was involved with, as the case may be. And so uh, either they're going to try to force that or foist that, excuse me, on someone else by constantly condemning and lecturing others about the evil of this, that, or the other. And that seems to be all they talk about. And you know, if there is that morbid introspection, it's because they have never really been set free from that guilt in Christ Jesus. On the other hand, people who do have a conscience and they realize that they are guilty of a particular action, they may be a little less inclined to speak out against it 
if they themselves are dealing with the guilt of having committed that same crime or infraction or immorality or, or what it may be. Right. You know, people know when they've done wrong. And uh, I, I bring up children a lot because it's a great lab to look at the manifestations of sin. We all want to say that the infant is pure, has never done anything wrong. Yeah, that's true. Until the first time the baby cries and doesn't get what it wants immediately and now learns how to turn up the volume. I mean, we're all born in sin and it doesn't take too long before we see it manifesting itself. But when children get older and you happen to miss something that they did that was wrong, my experience is that the guilt would precipitate them doing more things wrong. And I remember my husband and I used to say, I think he's asking for a spanking here. We don't exactly know why. And then once he did something that was really bad and now he got the spanking or he got the the discipline and such, then as part of the relief, we would find out what else he had done. And so guilty people will have to continue to do things. And I think they know they deserve to be punished. And Dr. Rush Juni wrote a whole book called The Politics of Guilt and Pity, talking about how people will resolve this guilt in a couple of ways. Either they will inflict pain on others, as you described Stalin had done, or they become masochistic in their orientation and they're willing to have things done to them because deep down inside they know they're guilty. And of course, the third or the primary way to have guilt alleviated is to take Christ's burden on us and take our burdens and place them on him. And that's the message of the gospel. The gospel is you're hopelessly lost. There's nothing you can do about it. You're guilty as all get out. This is the remedy. So that's why the scripture says, if the son shall make you free, you'll be free indeed. There's a, a story from the life of uh, the great reformer Martin Luther. I may have the details a little bit fuzzy, but it supposedly was something like this, that in his great personal struggle with sin and coming to the realization of uh, the blessings of justification by faith alone through grace alone, he would have these, uh, in a spiritual manner speaking, these wrestling matches, these arguments with the devil. And he said on occasion, Satan would accuse him. You know, you ought to be, you're, you're, you're kidding yourself. You're just a vile, filthy sinner. Don't, how can you even feel like God would forgive somebody like you? Supposedly his response was, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what I feel. I'm standing on what God's word clearly teaches. And on that, I'm saved and I'm relieved of guilt. Right. I saw another meme. I think my favorite part about Facebook are the memes that people come up with because they're a manifestation of hitting really close to home and hitting the target. One meme says something to the effect of, you know, I don't care all those nasty things you say about me. Every Sunday when I sing hymns in church, what I'm called is far worse. And, <laughs> you know, in Amazing Grace, we're admitting what? that we're wretches apart from Christ. So we don't even have to be afraid of what men say about us. What really matters is what God says about us. 
is our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? And when the judgment comes, are we among the sheep or the goats? Um, if people looked far enough ahead and realized that eternity is just that, endless, whatever inconvenience or disruption we feel in this short period of time is nothing compared to the joy that's set before us. The blessings of God's law word is that it's both a total word and also it gives proper balance to life. You know, because on the one hand, we have the case of uh, people who are totally eat up with guilt and they have no way of dealing with it. But then you have others, say, especially maybe in the type of churches that I referred to earlier, where they don't want anything to do with talking about the biblical foundations of guilt and forgiveness and atonement and these things. So there are hundreds of thousands, we can conjecture, of so-called evangelical Christians who are basically listening to self-esteem pep talks every Sunday, and um, they're told that guilt is, under any and all circumstances, a very bad thing. So uh, then we've got churches like we referred to uh, earlier that that's all they talk about. You know, they never seem to get off the point of, yes, I'm a filthy, guilty sinner. I don't deserve anything, and I'm constantly having to da-da-da versus, hey, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need to repent of anything, you know. And that's the challenge that we face is maintaining that balance. But fortunately, it's been done for us in terms of the procedures, the uh, the content. It's given to us in God's Word. And if people would but pay attention and read and learn and study what God has revealed to us in Holy Scripture, uh, they would find the corresponding balance in life. Yes, there are times where we should feel guilty. That's a, that's a part of the blessing that God has given us that you know, leads us away from continual sin. And if we've never uh, been redeemed, you know, by God's saving grace, the the uh, the urgency to cry out for that and receive uh, forgiveness. But the idea of simply staying there and never getting off the first base to where you're just constantly got the arrows pointing at yourself and you can't ever get anything done because you're such a vile, filthy sinner. Or on the other hand, uh, you, there's no difference in the way you live and think than uh, the average pagan whose life is dominated by the news media and television. Right. I always tell people for the good news to make sense, people need to understand the bad news. And that bad news is what I said before, is that we come into this world at war with God and God has established the terms of peace and those terms are the atoning blood of Jesus Christ at Calvary. And so once you understand the bad news and receive the good news, it's not that you're always happy, clappy, and everything you encounter in life doesn't bother you, but you're brought back to the essence of you're a new creation in Christ. And so you made reference earlier to what – what how do you describe or how do you – understand people that seem to have no sense of guilt don't seem to have a conscience that speaks to there is a right and a wrong. Does the Bible speak to that, Charles? Yes, absolutely it does. And that's uh, part of the unfolding story of uh, biblical history and the history of humanity. We don't really find, say, in the example of Cain and Abel, where Cain ever expressed any remorse for having killed his brother. Uh, Certainly the people I mentioned of Noah's day, 
there was no uh, no recorded remorse that we have. Uh, another person who I think is prominent in this way is King Saul. I mean, his resentment, his hatred for David, you know, was a manifestation of envy and also the guilt he was feeling about his attempts to uh, to kill King David. And then, you know, modern psychology has diagnosed a condition, you know, it calls uh, being a sociopath and also a psychopath. These are typically people, according to that definition, who don't feel any guilt at all about the sorts of things that they do. I'm, I'm not so sure that's true. Maybe the, the guilt is completely misplaced. So while they may not feel guilty about committing 15 murders, there's something they do feel guilty about. Now, fundamentally, they do. They would in their inner being, but there's something else, some other type of guilt that's driving it. But Scripture definitely speaks to this uh, bad record and, and a bad conscience. And so I think this is a, one of the key messages that we want to get across to people is that in, in spite of the guilt they may have, uh, there is hope and there is a way out. Um, there's a way of being delivered, and it's in God's law word. It's a source of absolute truth. I like the way Dr. Rastuni summed it up in the latter part of this essay on guilt, atonement, and freedom. He says, like a volcanic ash which covers the entire earth, colors the sun, and becomes a part of the air men breathe, so too a bad conscience is a part of the spiritual air of the, well, he wrote 20th century. It colors the life and thought of most men. It makes cowards and slaves of them all. Well, you made reference to the first chapter in the book of Romans, and I think it's very important for people to understand that everyone knows the truth. Either they receive the truth by God's grace, or they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So the longer someone rejects God, and you can't say, well, they just don't know. The book of Romans tells you, sorry, that's not an excuse. They do know. They're suppressing the truth. And when my husband would try to explain it to our children, he would use the very real example of trying to overstuff a suitcase and how you can get stuff in, but then you try to sit on it to be able to close it. And then the other side pops up. That's the reality. You can't successfully hide sin, but that doesn't mean people don't try. But I remember I was teaching the kids this verse out of Isaiah, which says, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. And if you think about that, Charles, that's pretty profound. That would tell you that there would be a time when he would not be found by someone. And I would really encourage the children to think about what that meant. In other words, they're supposed to seek after God. and. It's not that, well, God hasn't made himself known to me, or I, I just didn't know. None of us can say we didn't know, right? So as we get our theology straight, people can't make us feel good for what we do that's wrong, nor can people make us feel bad for what we do that is right. And I think that's that line of demarcation that I've been observing this last two years in terms of those who don't agree with how another person is approaching this, either they say, well, you're entitled to do what you think is best. That's one way of looking at it. And other people will say, you're hurting me, you're hurting everyone else, and there's this attack. 
So I, I think we're going to continue to see the conflict until such time as the Holy Spirit moves in the hearts and minds of people who need to have their hearts and minds moved. Yes, and I'll just uh, I'll wrap up my uh, portion of our discussion this way uh, regarding the issue of guilt and freedom and conscience and atonement with uh, one more statement that Dr. Restuni made. He said, the world's great and overwhelming need is for freedom, but men reject freedom and when they reject Christ. But he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And that truth is Jesus Christ who declares, if the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And that is indeed the basis of our personal hope, our cultural hope, and the hope of the world. Very good. I appreciate your closing thoughts. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for joining us. Get in touch with us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And Charles, I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.